Rami. And I'm Shannon, and this is Workplace Hugs. Workplace Hugs is a podcast where we talk about interesting things we've read and how it relates to the workplace experience. Our goal here is really simple. We want to help all of us expand our workplace toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy without a whole new degree. We're going to talk about some of these meteor topics in three different scenarios. First, we'll hit it on the highest level. Then we'll talk about how we've maybe experienced it at a lower level. And lastly, we'll share some really practical ways that you can take this back into your own workplace life. Rami, I hear we get to talk about Disney and one of the former CEO's experiences today. Yes, I, I kind of screwed up the beginning part. So should we start from the beginning and re-record? Because I have this perpetual pursuit of perfection that I want to talk about. <laughs> And maybe we should just start from the beginning. I'm, I'm only joking. So we are going to be talking about the book Ride of a Lifetime by, by Bob Iger, who was the most recent CEO of Disney. And the thing that we're going to really focus on today is this relentless pursuit of perfection, which is why I was being facetious at the beginning. Um, at first, I thought you were serious. And I was like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> So this book is really interesting in that if you want to know a little bit of the more detailed parts of the most recent parts of Disney's history, which would be the acquisition of Marvel, the acquisition of Pixar, the the expansion of the Marvel Universe, I think there's a little bit more in there than we've kind of seen in any of the articles that we've read there isn't a whole lot about the Disney parks. There's one anecdote about the most recent Disney park, which opened, which was Shanghai Disneyland, um, which is a delight and you should visit. I feel like I never get to talk about how much I love Disney and Disneyland. Rami does love Disney and Disneyland. Yeah, you maybe need to double down on, on the books that allow us to talk about it more. I think maybe we're just going to go down the, the Disney path. I do share a birthday with Walt Disney. And so there's lots of fun facts for me to share about Disney. But this book isn't so much about I want to find out a bunch of like juicy things about Disney. It's more Bob Iger walking you through his career. I would say from a biography perspective, from an autobiography perspective, it's not going to give you outside of those few topics a lot that isn't really in his wiki, wiki, his Wikipedia page. And so from that perspective, I think you're not going to get a lot of personal things. Mm -hmm. He's very much averse to sharing a lot of personal things. And he shares kind of how he feels, but he doesn't share a lot of how that impacts his family or other things. I think he, he mentions his first set of children almost offhandedly like once or twice. Wait, and I'm then sorry. He has sets of children? <laughs> I say sets in that like he had in a first wife and then a second wife. Got it. And so... Uh, it's rude of me to say this in sets, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how he refers to them is like, he barely refers to the first family dynamic. And then the second one, he talks a lot about his wife, but doesn't really talk about those kids at all either, which I don't know, but it's very different than a lot of other autobiographies where they will delve into more of the family dynamics because that's a part of who that person is. This one is very much business by the book. And so he has what he comes up with like 10 leadership habits towards the end. So I want to go through five of them. 
What we're really going to get to, though, is the fifth one, which is the relentless pursuit of perfection. I want to talk about the other four first, because I think they're good, even if they're things that you've heard before. But I think they're they're really important leadership tips. So let's hop right into those. The first one is don't let your ego get in the way. Yes. Yes, please. Which is doing what's best for the company, even if it means falling on your sword. So he gives an example from the book about how the CEO prior to him, Michael Eisner, was very much an egotistical person and was always thinking about his legacy as he did everything. And so when he would get into conversations with someone like Steve Jobs, who was also had a big ego, the two of them would just clash. And so that was never going to work in terms of a continued relationship between Disney and Pixar, which Steve Jobs was the CEO of. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of had to let that part come down and approach it differently to make a Disney Pixar um, relationship work. The second part is being bold. This is one that I think is interesting because he kind of goes about saying the only things that will define your career are the bold decisions. So in his case, it's really buying Pixar and then Marvel, right? Like Disney right now is a Pixar and Marvel engine. And those are the things that define his career. And those were the two biggest and boldest moves. So he says, be bold. And I think that that totally makes sense. Yeah, that was one of the leadership expectations at Target, where we both worked, was be bold. Was was, was that one of them when you were still there? Or did they change that? I think it was. Okay, yeah, they had like the four and be bold was one of them. And I remembered that one feeling really freeing when it came out. Because I think in a lot of larger companies, you, you don't really get that permission slip as much. To no. be bold. And the fact that they were bold and saying, no, this is one of our four core values meant a lot. And then too, quickly going back to the let your ego get in the way, that reminds me of just like a, a more broader servant leadership philosophy. Or mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't like to prescribe to servant leadership anymore, but more of the like leading from behind. You know, we don't need to get out in front all the time and let our ego do the driving. So I'm loving well, those first two. And I think those two kind of clash with each other, right? Because it's hard to be bold without believing really strongly in your idea i don't feel the clash in those as much because i think about times where i had to be bold in favor of my team you know like which wasn't about ego at all like where i had to take a stand and say no we're not doing that my team's not spending time on that that's not a valuable use of their brain space and energy i think that's fair i think when i think of being bold it's like doing something new or something scary. And I think that takes a lot of confidence to, to be bold. Mm -hmm. And I think the confidence ego piece can kind of start to, to rub heads there. Yeah. I think about it more in terms of like, who, who are you trying to serve here? And I think ego can get in the way for people when they're trying to serve themselves, Mm -hmm. but you can be bold because you want to serve whatever the, the people or population that you're really focused on serving, even if you do work for a for-profit company and have it not be about you whatsoever. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's really about where the intention of the boldness comes from. Mm-hmm. Is this really to serve myself and my legacy? If so, then your ego will get in the way. But yeah. is it really to like make the team's life better Then no, like you're doing it from like a servant mentality. I like that. Shannon. Okay, so the next one is no one wants to follow a pessimist. And I'm going to read a quote from the book. Uh, Pessimism leads to paranoia, which leads to defensiveness, which which leads to risk aversion. 
So optimism sets a different machine in motion, especially in difficult moments. The people you lead need to feel confident in your ability to focus on what matters, not to operate from a place of defensiveness and Mm self-preservation. This isn't about saying things are good when they're not, and it's not about conveying some inane faith that things will work out. It's about believing you and the people around you can steer towards the best outcome and not communicating the feeling that all is lost if things don't break your way. The tone you set as a leader has an enormous effect on the people around you. No one wants to follow a pessimist. Yeah. Okay. I like this. What it makes me think about is, I think in the book, Immunity to Change, I forget what episode we cover that in. They touch on the four ways that we create trust with people as leaders or just in general. And one of Mm -hmm. them is belief. So where he says like, you know, optimism, I would substitute in belief because it's just like, Mm -hmm. are we communicating belief in the team and our team's ability in that sense? Because yet no one wants to follow a pessimist who does not believe in the team or the company's ability to get something done. I don't know. What do you make of it? No, I think you're right on. I think his pivot is the same one that you're saying. It's it's don't be mindlessly optimistic, but have belief that you can succeed and that you have the right team to succeed. Yeah. And I think that's what he's saying is like you don't no one wants to follow a pessimist. That's very basic. But being nobody wants to follow a like delusional optimist either, right? right. It's like how do you balance belief in success? with a optimistic viewpoint that you can succeed because of the the way you've set yourself up. And I think that's the approach here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Don't put on the rose-colored glasses, so to speak, of like, it's all going to work out, but believe that you and your team can make the hard calls to make to make it all work out in the end. Exactly. So that's the third one. No one wants to follow a pessimist. The fourth one is don't just present problems, provide possible solutions. So his quote is, as a general rule, I don't like to lay out problems without offering a plan for addressing them. I think this makes sense. His example has to do with going in front of the board and saying, oh, this is an issue we have. We're seeing this problem and then coming to them with a solution. But I think regardless of the situation, it's always helpful to have a solution, whether it's the solution, I don't know, but coming to people and saying, here's the issue that we have, and here's the approach that we should take for for fixing that, or here's a potential opportunity to fix that, I think is always helpful because it shows that you're not going back to the last one, not being a pessimist that like, this is the problem, but you're being a optimist in that like, well, maybe here's one of the ways that we can fix that thing. Yeah, I know we're going to double down a lot on the next one, but I do want to just like underscore bold italic (laughs) emphasize this thing that you just said, because I think this is where I see a lot of folks newer in their careers fub up a little bit. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for there. Uh, And I remember having when I would share with my team, like what my vision and values were for our team, one of them was like be a batteries included contributor, like If you're presenting a problem, try to have a solution. It might not be the one that we end up with, but Mm -hmm. we've got to stay solution oriented in our mindset. And I, I think I see too many, God, I sound old. I think I see too many young, young folks these days who do not point the finger back at themselves when it comes to the 
solution finding phase. They're mm-hmm. just like going to continue to point out there to everybody else and why this is a problem versus pointing the finger back on themselves and thinking, okay, how can I contribute or be a part of the solution? Well, and I think too, if you think about a, you, you go to your group of peers or whatever this meeting is and you say, here's the problem. Well, everybody's going to be in that like negative mindset, right? And if you say, okay, here's the problem, let's unpack it. And then you go, okay, here's a potential opportunity for us to fix this thing. Then you've got everybody solutioning. Yes. And then you guys can work from a positive place as opposed to a negative place. And I think that that's the main portion here is how do you, how do you acknowledge, how do you address the negative and then start to get in that positive and start working on the positive? Yes. It's not putting all the ownership on yourself to find the right solution at the end of the day, which is another area where I think folks can struggle and like putting it all on themselves, but it's putting it on yourself to like get it started, you know? Mm hmm. Okay, so the last one, and this is the one that I think we're going to spend the time on here and really unpack, which is have a relentless pursuit of perfection, which I think in no way sounds toxic or or wrong, (laughs) Shannon. Oh my gosh, when I hear this right at the top, everything about my body contracts in, wants to vomit, (laughs) like, ooh, I feel like this is what I am... I think on darn near every coaching plan for every client I've ever worked with, they have a behavioral goal about pursuing perfection less, about freeing up themselves. So when I hear something like this, I'm like, no, I think this is actually where a lot of folks get it wrong Mm -hmm. to expect and be relentlessly pursuing perfection. Because what I see in a lot of folks is that it kills them in even just getting started. They Mm -hmm. never allow themselves to start or to play or to experiment, which is something, a theme that I think we come back on the podcast a lot. And it perfection makes people get stuck. I, I often will talk to clients about how perfection and procrastination are like, BFFs, like uh-huh. those two things go together like I don't know what goes together that well. And so I have a really strong averse reaction when I hear when I hear something like relentless pursuit of perfection. But tell me more, tell me more. What does he say in the book about this? So he doesn't doesn't break any of the negative stereotypes that you have. And and I'm not going to allude that he does. What I'm going to infer from it, though, is a way for us to make this a reasonable leadership goal for ourselves. So mm-hmm. let me tell you how he talks about it. And then let's do our workplace hugs, empathic spin on it. Yes. So he worked in ABC sports for a long time under someone named Rune Arledge. And Rune is like the person who helped set up so many things and, and, and really defined the way that we see sports presented now. And even the way that we see news presented now, because he had his hand in all of those things. And Rune's quote, always to everybody was do what you need to, to make it better. And, an example they go through is they were filming a Frank Sinatra concert. They had him in a boxing ring for some reason in Madison Square Garden. They did the the dress rehearsal on, let's say it's Friday night. They did the dress rehearsal and it was terrible because it made no sense that you have Frank Sinatra in the middle of a boxing ring. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. So 
they had 12 hours or 15 hours or whatever it was. So they scrapped that idea and they quickly came up with another idea and, and used that pursuit of perfection, that doing what needs to be done to make it better, to make it better. Now, I think if we all put that task on ourselves, we would die. We would kill ourselves trying to be perfect. Yeah. I think the reason that it works in the context I want to add here is they had a, a very definitive uh, ending that they had to hit. It had to go live at some point. Yep. So whether they were um, doing a live football game, whether they were doing this Frank Sinatra concert, like at some point the tape had to roll and they had to air the thing. It wasn't like they could continue to tinker with it after the fact. And so having a very firm restriction on the end of the time, I think allows them to do what they need to do to make it better because it's not like they can perpetually do this thing. Mm -hmm. The inverse of this, the really negative piece of this, having this relentless pursuit of perfection, I think of someone like Francis Ford Coppola and I think of a movie like Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is a movie that came out 30 some odd years ago and was a momentous movie for Francis Ford Coppola to make. And for him to get his first cutout was insane. He finally got that first cutout and that became the theatrical cut. Now you're going to say, well, Rami, okay, that's cool. So then there's one director's cut of this movie. Well, no, Shannon, I will tell you there's two different director's cuts of this movie because this guy cannot stop pursuing perfection with this, but you know what? He has, he has the ability and the time to continue to play with it because he released that first cut. And now if he wants to tinker with it until he dies, he can, right? He, he has that ability to relentlessly pursue perfection. And I think that's the problem. And I think that's the really negative part of having this as a leadership goal or having this as a focus is if you don't have a restriction on yourself, then you will continue to pursue perfection. What I will tell you is I've watched all three cuts of Apocalypse Now and the theatrical cut to me, I think is the best one because he was forced to cut it. He had to end it at a certain point because they had to print the film and they had to put it in theaters. Yeah. And so I think you can over, um, you can over tinker with things because you have the time to do it. And so my pivot here is how do we in places where we want to pursue perfection, how do we put restrictions and limitations on ourselves, right? I think of um, if you're developing a new product, right? At some point, you need to decide, well, we need to be done with it by this date because we need to print the packaging. We need to start filling the product. We need to do this. We need to do that. So I think pursuing perfection, great. I think having a very definitive end goal in mind with when you have to stop pursuing it yep. is the most important piece because if you don't have that to Shannon's point I think you will be perpetually procrastinating and putting off and is there another p word I was I gonna can say can we like pee this up a little bit <laughs> yeah pee, pee all over this thing but I think that's what it is is if you don't have an end goal and an end date and a cutoff you will per sue perfection relentlessly and i think you need to put that end goal to say okay well i need to lock this by this date right i need to lock that post i need to lock that chapter of my book i need to do whatever it is by this date and as long as we are all aligned on that thing i think it keeps you from procrastinating because you know you have an end goal 
right? And I think it forces you to be done at that point because you, you've said to the printer, I will hand you this thing by that date. Well, and what was coming to me more, I, I respect the idea of around, let's set ourselves up for success by putting an end date. But honestly, the change that I want to make to this phrase is start and then do what you need to do to make it better. I like that. So, so just get get going. Yes, like start. Because I think that's more what I observe in folks is, is not necessarily on the back end, like where they won't cut it off. It's like that they put so much pressure on themselves to be perfect that they they don't even give themselves to st- permission to start. So I think about concepts from design thinking and like, how do you just start and like get a prototype out no matter how <laughs> freaking ridiculous it is. And then giving yourself permission to iterate from there, because once you've got a prototype moving forward, and, and I use that word very loosely, like I think about something that I call values and vision intensives that I do in my business. I started doing those three or four years ago. And if I look back on some of the first iterations of it, like, oh, it makes me cringe. Uh But I'm so glad I gave myself permission to just start and like offer that service three or four years ago for the first time so that now I think I got to like the iteration that it is now a lot faster because Mm -hmm. I gave myself permission to just like start, get a prototype out and then tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak from there like make it every season that i do value vision i think okay how do i want this one to be a little bit better than the last one but if i would have never started i would still be totally paralyzed by perfection well and i think you're hitting it on the nose right that design thinking ideas you get you get ideas out no matter how bad they are because something because good ideas will come from inspiration of bad ideas yes and i think even even just the idea of like, okay, I know I need to build a framework. So let me build this framework. Let me just build a framework. And then let me put it aside for a minute, come back to it. And then I'll iterate and I'll iterate and I'll iterate and I'll iterate. And then at some point I'm going to have to lock it and then send it off. And that'll be version 1.9 because I've iterated nine times on that thing. Yes. But at least I started with something. I wasn't, I wasn't unable to get going. And because I started, I could iterate. And how do we make it normal or acceptable in our workplaces and in our lives, frankly, to iterate, to not have something be so set in stone, so locked in, so final? I think about how this applies to, frankly, even like (laughs) political beliefs, you know, where people get so married to wanting to be perfect or be right. And they, Mm -hmm. they get so married to never admitting that they've made a mistake or that they want to change something about something we just got to scrap that and like say, no, 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 it's normal and okay for you to start with one iteration of your political beliefs, of your workplace setup, of a project that you're working on at work and let it evolve over time to test and iterate and continue to tweak it and make it better. Yeah. There's a really beautiful quote from one of the Beastie Boys where someone was saying, well, because at, at the beginning of their career, they were very um, misogynistic and very sexist. And as they continued on their career, they realized that they didn't want to continue to be that way and they wanted to change. And they, someone interviewed them because they had done a, like a song that was more female empowerment. They're like, well, what gives you the right? Like, why, why should we listen to you guys when you've been like the most sexist band of all time? Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, we're willing to admit that we were wrong and change. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, looking back like no one no one will say that 
if you're willing to admit that you're wrong and you're willing to change, that you should still, that that is, how do I articulate this? I think if you're willing to show that vulnerability and willing to admit and look back on your past mistakes, I think that's what allows people to be more vulnerable with you and allows you to get to that next step and to to grow and to change. I think when you when you do that thing and you never admit that it was wrong and you never change with the times, I think that's the part that gets really hard for people to want to be vulnerable and to want to iterate with you. Yeah, I think that's empathy, right? Like that's empathy in a nutshell of what can become possible in our workplaces and in our lives when we operate with a little bit more empathy towards ourselves, towards others, when they say like, oh, whoops, made a mistake, or oh, whoops, I have an idea. Not even an oh, whoops, but like, oh, I have an idea of how this could be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like where we landed on this one, Rami. I like it. So I, I want to dive a little bit into perfectionists, and then I think we're good. So um, Shannon, have you worked with perfectionists? Are you a perfectionist? <laughs> how has that been? So when Rami first phrased this question to me, it was, have you ever worked with a perfectionist before? And I was racking my brain of like, oh, maybe this person was a perfectionist when I was in that role. But then what I realized is that I was the worst one of them all. Like, truly, like, I was the one in relentless pursuit of perfection. And how did that go? How has that been? It wreaked havoc on my (laughs) professional career for the first 10 years because it would... uh, Yeah, it's what I go back to of perfection and procrastination are best friends, you know, like they are just like, so tight, like you can't even get them apart. They are glued by super glue. And so I would procrastinate a lot on things so fearful that I wouldn't get it right. And for me, I look at like the last four years of my professional experience. And I'm so glad I unlearned that habit. (laughs) It's so much more freeing, right? And, And honestly, like you get so much better data and inputs then to make better decisions when you don't have to have it be perfect the first time. Well, and it's interesting because I, I've never seen myself as a perfectionist. And I think the anxiety I get about thinking about being a perfectionist is enough to keep me from being a perfectionist. Mm. But I think my whole life until someone told me what design thinking was, I thought I could I think I was a design thinker until I was explained what it was. And then I knew that that's what I wanted to be, which is basically just like get things out and then iterate. Right. Yes. And I think when you, when you drop the pre pumption, whatever that word is, that everything should be perfect and just go with the idea that like, we just need to get things out. And I think it comes from working in small startups, which is we just we need to do 1.0. We just need to do something and then we will make it better. And we'll always we will always be making it better. But we have to get that first thing out. Yes. And I think having less resources, having less time, I think forces you to do that. I think when you have resources and you have time, you're more willing to be very strategic and slow. And we want to approach this thing the right way because we're investing all these things when you don't have any of that. You kind of say, well, uh, we don't have any time, so what's our first and best idea? Okay, cool. Everybody feel good about that this could be successful? Great. Let's do it. And then afterwards, let's look back on it and then fix all the things that didn't work about it. But we don't have time to over-engineer that piece right now because we don't have the time to even think about it more than what we're talking about right now. And so I think that has always been an aspect of how I work because of the environment that I work in. And I think that's really akin to how I work, which is different than that pursuit of perfection. I think that 
that perfection and procrastination because they're bedfellows, I think makes it hard to get anywhere. I think when you don't have the time, the energy, the bandwidth or the money to do those things, then you kind of have to throw all that out and say, we just need something. Yes. And, and what's that something? And, and we'll fix that something later. But if that something can fit the cog that we need it to, great, right? Push the clay in, doesn't matter if it sets. Push the Play-Doh in, doesn't matter if it sets. The paper mache in yes. and let's run. And if that thing starts to break on us, we'll go back and fix it, right? And we'll put a little bit thicker layer on it. And we'll put a little bit thicker layer on it. We'll put a little bit thicker layer. But at no point are we going to be able to make that out of... I don't know what a strong metal is. Iron? Is iron a strong metal? Yeah, sure. Steel? I can believe that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. All of those sound very <laughs> But yeah, like that idea. And I think, oh my God, like going back to the example that I thought of with values and vision intensives, like if I would have pursued perfection relentlessly and what if it had been a flop? Like what a freaking mm-hmm. waste of time and energy. And that's, that's the biggest lesson I think I've learned as an entrepreneur too of like, I would so much rather get an initial version in and then get my actual like client feedback on it. Mm-hmm. Even if they say things that I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know like the font needs to change da, 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 da. like whatever. I would so much rather get that feedback versus waste 40 times the amount of time having pursued per- perfect just to find out that it's actually not something that a person or a consumer wants or needs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. All mm-hmm. day long. Okay, so let's take this back home. Let's get tactical. I think we've been talking about all these things. I think the biggest pieces here are, yes, I think having a relentless pursuit of perfection is good. I think the the quote, do what you need to do to make it better, I think is also a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think to Shannon's point, give yourself that permission to start, prototype, iterate. How do you get that version one out there so you can see if it's even what people want? If it's even what is going to be accepted is even going to get traction. I think on top of that, giving that 1.0 also lets you get feedback, right? It lets you, it lets you iterate. It lets you make it better. I think it, it's, it's also speed to market, right? Like the faster you get that first thing out, the sooner you can get to your 2.0. And the sooner you get to your 2.0, the sooner you get to that like really refined version of it, right? That may take, 40 iterations between 1.0 and 2.0 but the way that you get there is by getting that 1.0 out and then iterating on it but if you if you work forever to try and just start with 2.0 it's never going to happen yes yes permission to start that's like my big thing (laughs) and then if we're going to talk about the start we should talk about the end so i think if you are going to pursue that perfection and i think you are going to do what you need to do to make it better you need to have an end you need to have a cutoff you need to have an end point so that when you do pursue that thing, i.e. Francis Ford Coppola with the cover Apocalypse Now, you release it, you put it in theaters, and like that was your goal and your end date. And if you are Francis Ford Coppola, yes, you can continue to iterate and release two more versions of that film. But for most of us, right, we get that first one out, we're just going to iterate on that thing and make it into a 2.0, right? We're not going to make Apocalypse Now Redux, we're going to make the next thing, and we're going to keep iterating, and we're going to keep growing. So... That's where I say, like, I think we start from a very toxic place of pursuing perfection relentlessly. I think that is a a very toxic mentality. I think the idea of doing what you can do to make it better by giving yourself the ability to start and having an end goal, I think, is the empathic workplace hugs approach to the relentless pursuit of perfection. 
Well said, Rami. That is the workplace hugs approach, darn it. With that, we would love for you to come hang out with us on Instagram at workplace hugs. I find myself really curious, like, where do people just need to give themselves permission to start? Where do you want to give yourselves permission to start? We'd love for you to drop us a comment and share that with us on on Instagram. And with that, I've been Shannon. I've been Rami. And this has been Workplace